Welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host with Dr. Kenneth Howell. Thank you for joining us on this continuing study of the book of Romans. Uh, we'll probably be in Romans now at least almost into the summer. Uh, and then, uh, hey, if you've got some ideas of where you'd like us to go next, if you're a regular listener to the program, we'd love to hear from you. You can connect with us at deepinscripture.com or you can email us at dis at chnetwork.org. And we're coming to you from the studios at the Coming Home Network International. Last week I was sick, so I think we uh, we had to broadcast another program. Uh, this crud keeps going around. Ken, I don't know if you got it in your neck of the woods, but it was nasty over here in <laughs> central Ohio. Um, so, you know, for me, con not conforming to the world and being transformed uh, meant locking myself away in my bedroom for about <laughs> four or five yeah. days. And so um, today we're going to look at and pick up again on chapter 12 of Romans. Um, we're going to focus mostly on verses 9 through 21, but it all is a part. So we're going to begin again with verse 1 of chapter 12 and take us all the way through uh, about what does Paul's call to have a transformed mind, what does that mean? How do you, you know, how do you corral that in? How do you guide a, a renewed mind? What are the criteria? And recognizing that it really isn't so much an individual task but it's something that we do as a part of the body, corporately. For our faith was never intended to be an individualistic thing. It was always intended to be a, a shared journey with other Christians in obedience to Christ. So we'll talk about that in a moment. But first, let's look at an email. We all love to hear your emails. And uh, this is a particularly good, challenging email. Um, and it goes, Mr. Grodi, and I think he was, he was taking me on, Ken. Um, he says, I've heard you quip many times and in your books that when Scripture says, from 1 Timothy 3.15, that the pillar and bulwark of the truth is the church, Jesus could not have meant the thousands of denominations divided by contrary interpretations of Scripture that we now have in our world. For how could an invisible church of faithful believers be the pillar and bulwark of anything? And, uh, and let me just say as an aside to that, he's actually quoting something that I have the main character say in my book, How Firm a Foundation. Mm -hmm. uh, going on, he says, this may sound reasonable, but if this seeming disunited diversity is contrary to God's will, then why does God continue to bless hundreds of thousands of non-Catholic Christians? Why does God continue to use these non-Catholic Christian traditions to inspire and evangelize thousands of people every year around the globe out of darkness, into faith in Jesus Christ, away from sin, into prayerful devotional lives, and even out of secular lives, into lives dedicated to ministry? With so few people worldwide converting to the Catholic Church, it appears that God is quite willing to work with a universal, invisible church, just as it is. Thank you, Aaron. Well, first, Ken, what do you think about his statement? I mean, I would agree that God does continue to bless hundreds of thousands of non-Catholic Christians. Oh, yeah. And I think uh, 
first of all, Aaron, I really appreciate it. If you're listening, I really appreciate this question. I think it's a a very important question, but we're, you and, and we are not the first ones to ask this kind of question. Uh, the question, I think, is saying <clears throat> that we have made a, we, we've said that this is what Scripture teaches, namely that there is this visible church that Christ founded. That's the b- pillar and bulwark of, of the faith and of believers. Um, and that there is this, and that the invisible church idea that has become so prominent in uh, Western evangelicalism uh, is not really biblical, and it's not really uh, it's not really um, Christian, and ultimately, and the question then that Aaron wants to know is, well, then, if that's true, if these people are outside the true church, well, then how can how can it be that God continues to bless these? And I think there's several ways to think about this, but one of them is Israel asked the same question in the book of Habakkuk. When Israel, when the people of Judah during the time of Habakkuk, this was just before the Babylonian exile, when the people of Israel, rather the people of Judah, were so disobedient, so unrighteous, and God was going to judge them, God used a pagan nation to judge them. Now, how could God do that was the question Habakkuk and the people around him were asking. And the question, the important point is that even though God was using a pagan nation to discipline or punish his own people, he never rejected his own people. And in the same way, God may use many people outside the Catholic communion, but that doesn't mean that the Catholic communion is not the true church. It's not the church of Jesus Christ. Or conversely, from a Catholic standpoint, looking out into the world, we can rejoice in all that God does through the hands and the lives and the mouths of many non-Catholic Christians. Uh, to the extent that they come to faith in Christ, and as you say, they're living a prayerful and devotional life, um, we rejoice in that. The church rejoices in that, precisely because they're coming into closer into the church at presently only um, imperfectly joined to the church, but but nevertheless are coming closer. It it seems to me, Ken, that what's also being addressed here is a, a, a normal, understandable uncomfortableness that maybe all of us struggle with, uh, and that is the the mystery of the both hand uh, in theology and understanding God and understanding our relationship with God, um, where you know it, it's maybe normal for for us to be more comfortable with an either or. The clarity of black and white, either or about things. Mm-hmm. And that's seems like throughout the history of the church, that's been a constant struggle. When one looks back at, at councils of the church and decisions made throughout history, it, often the battle is against those that want to make an either or out of something where there's still a mystery of a both hand. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I think it's correct that St. Augustine uh, was the one who addressed in the back in his city of God this originally addressed this idea of an invisible church, but we also know that there's that Augustine was completely committed to the institutional church, yeah. 
That's right. And there are many, many quotes from Augustine where he says, you know, you can have lots of things outside the church, but you can't have salvation mm-hmm. apart from the church. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, he recognizes that in the institutional church, sadly, there are those that are really not faithful members of the church. Mm-hmm. And there are people outside the institutional church that are more faithful to God than many in the church. So how do you deal with those two issues? And on the one hand, you had the Protestant reformers and Luther and Calvin particularly uh, putting the emphasis on the invisible church at the expense of any affirmation of the institutional church. So again, here we have the either or. It's just the invisible church, no authoritative institutional church. And then on the other extreme, we have many that take the more universalist perspective that say, well, you know, Jesus died for everyone, and through Christ all have been given new life. And that comes from certain verses. And so from particular scriptures, we have this rise of universalism, which is the other extreme that says, again, there is no church, uh, there's universal salvation. Uh, Both cases involve a rejection of the mystery of the church. And to a certain extent, Ken, a good part of all of Vatican II was addressing this very issue of the mystery of the both and, the beauty of the church, that God normally works through sacraments, that it's through the sacramental life that we receive his grace, his indwelling, it's through the sacraments that we become a part of the body, and so anyone that's baptized is a part of this body. But all throughout Vatican II, there also recognizes that God is not limited, though, by the church or the sacraments, that he, in the freedom of his love, can reach out to anyone. And if anything, what it points out to is our need individual, individually to do exactly what Paul's calling us to do in this passage, because the reason often that people are outside the church is because we in the church need a renewal of our minds. You know, and our lives are not necessarily great witnesses of what it means to be Christians, and therefore our lives are not appealing to people outside the church. And so maybe they want nothing to do with the church because they look at us. Lord, help us. Well, you're not kidding. That's, uh, but it seems to me the word, the word that keeps coming back to me as you describe this so, um, so accurately and beautifully, Marcus, uh, in the teaching of Vatican II, is balance. <clears throat> the balance between... On the one hand, affirming that Christ did establish a visible church, but recognizing the sort of mysterious ambiguity that all that not everyone in the church is of the church, and not all those outside the church are really outside the church. They're in their hearts in the church. Um, and so God, and, and God is not limited to uh, using just structures. You say God is. God is great and sovereign, and He can use anyone. I mean, for heck, he for he used a he used an ass, <laughs> he used a donkey uh, to to speak his uh, to speak his word in the case of Balaam. And so, um, if God can use people so uh, a, so meek or so rather so you know insignificant. Um, well then, then we just have to rejoice in the fact that he can do that, and 
and thank God that for those that are around the world uh, through various non-Catholic ministries are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And we hope and pray for the day when that might be more fully realized in visible form. Yeah, we have the salvation history of the Old Testament, Adam and his descendants, and Noah, okay, in the covenants. And then we have Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and then Moses and Aaron and, and Samuel and, and David and Solomon. So you have this long history, the thread of the church, right? Mm-hmm. And then there's Melchizedek. What's he doing? <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know, all of a sudden there's Melchizedek. You know, where'd he come from? How's he fit into the flow of these things? So we see the beauty of God's mystery of reaching out to people uh, who are after him. After You know, God works in grace. There's a you're more of a theologian than, than me, Ken. You know, how, how does the church define that, that God places a seed of grace in the heart of every human being that exists? Mm-hmm. And, and that grace is there as a, in their conscience to draw them closer to God. And, and, and people who live their entire lives have never heard the name Jesus, yet by responding by grace to the grace within their conscience— can be pleasing to God. Yeah. And we talked about that earlier in the book of Romans, back in chapters 1 and 2. You know, there, There's the mystery of that, but it doesn't discount the gift of the church and the necessity of the church and the, right. and the evangelization of the church and the need for renewal in the church. You know, we have this mystery of the both and. Well, I mean, you know, I've just, you know, we're all, I think, on our minds uh, in the last few years has been this question about... Uh, what is marriage? And there's an analogy here. <clears throat> is marriage something just for two people, or is it something for the uh, per, the procreation and the education and the raising of children for the human race? And <clears throat> when you think about that, there's a, there's a parallel here, I think, and that is it would be um, we realize that there are um, unusual situations, for example, that we need to have adoptions. Or that maybe uh, maybe relatives need to adopt and so forth, where children are not living with their biological parents. We realize these uh, situations that are not the norm, but that doesn't negate that the best context for children growing up is with their biological father and their biological mother even though we have these other situations. So we rejoice in, you know, grandparents or uncles and aunts and, and even strangers who, who take in children to care for them because they desperately need that. However, that does not say that those are equal to uh, the biological parents raising children. Yeah, I, I think of... If you take this this question or statement about you know how God is doing so many great things outside the church, does that therefore mean the church is not necessary? I mean that's kind of what he's saying here. Mm-hmm. I think of two figures of great renown, actually three figures of great renown after World War II, and uh, and we have Edith Stein, um, the Jewess who mm-hmm. converted to Christianity and became a Catholic nun. Uh, who died a martyr to the Nazis. We have Maximilian, St. Maximilian Kolbe, 
a Franciscan priest who uh, gave himself as a substitute for a, a husband and father who was to be killed by the Nazis, and they killed Maximilian instead. So he dies a martyr for Jesus Christ. And then we have at the same time uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, a great hero of so many. Uh, I loved his books when I was an evangelical. Uh, um, the Cost of Discipleship um, and, uh, and, and his other books on ethics and such. You know, and he, you know, in, in defending the, the church, uh, his, his evangelicalism against the state church, he was martyred in the last days of the war. I mean, just so sad, uh, you know, that, that he was just kind of flippantly martyred there at the end. You know, one could take these three deeply committed martyrs for Jesus Christ and then come to a conclusion that, well, see, the church doesn't matter. It's just Jesus Christ. But one looks in, the, in the, the lives, especially of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, we recognize that as deeply committed as, as he was to Jesus Christ and, and, uh, and to Scripture and to living out discipleship faithfully, that in the environment in which he lived, it would have been extremely difficult for him to have ever truly been open to the Catholic Church. Um, so few influences ever reached him in that time in Germany. He had some influences with a couple of monasteries that he would visit. But, but the real chance for him to hear the message under that horrendous time of Hitler and, uh, and the National Church would have been almost unthinkable for him to have converted in the same way that we look at a great Christian like C.S. Lewis. As much as the influences he had during that same exact time period, yet there were barriers from the time he was a young boy that would have always made it difficult in his heart of hearts to ever truly be open to the fullness of the church. And so we recognize there the both and, the mystery of people dedicated to Jesus Christ, drawn to Jesus Christ, touched by grace, but yet their salvation comes through Christ and his church. It never, we never hesitate from recognizing how the church was a channel of grace into their lives. Yeah, yeah that's, and that, because it's the, the church that historically has handed down the message of the gospel, so the message of the gospel that we are heirs of today in the 21st century, that C.S. Lewis was the heir of in you know the mid-20th century, this has all come to us through the church. So the question that, that Aaron is raising here um, is a question about um, you know, how did this faith get to us? Even if that faith has been taken outside <laughs> the formal boundaries of the church, how did it get to us in the first place? And so even though those people out there individually, maybe even in non-Catholic churches, are proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, probably usually in some truncated form, but nevertheless, uh, you know, basically it is the message of Christ and the gospel, um, their origin, that, that message that they got came to them and to us through the church that is historic, that historic church that we call one Holy Catholic and Apostolic. Yeah, mea culpa, right? Mea culpa, mea maxima culpa is a, is a phrase that Catholics know well, and that's a phrase of, it's my fault. It's my fault. Mm. 
And when we look at why there's divisions in the in the world, it's my fault. You know, we look at, you know, is my life a perfect example of following Jesus Christ? Is you know, and and I fail. And we've there's been a few of us that have failed over the centuries. And so we we look at the divisions and Christians. We can't blame anybody but ourselves. But as we look forward, it's our responsibility to live according to the faith and to make sure that the church that we leave our children is better than we found it Mm -hmm. Uh, so Mm -hmm. that they have a strong faith in the midst of a culture, in the Mm -hmm. midst of a culture that's rejecting everything, Mm -hmm. everything that's traditional. And that's why maybe, Ken, let's, let's get to the scriptures. I mean, it really brings us back to why the scriptures in Romans chapter 12 are so important. As Paul has, in the first 11 chapters, has built his theology uh, in, in life in Christ. And now from chapter 12 on, he's going to talk about, okay, how do we live that out? And verses 1 and 2 of, of chapter 12 Romans, which um, are very familiar where Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that you may prove what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Often we hear those scriptures in an individualistic way. What is it calling me to do? Uh, What is Paul saying to me? to offer my body as a living sacrifice in my life as a husband, a father, and a friend, and a leader. What's it calling me to do? How is my life a living sacrifice of spiritual worship? And then, and then how am I, how am I to, conf- to transform my thinking so I'm not merely conforming to the world so that my life I'm able to prove what God's will is for my life and what's good. We often think that way, and there's a truth there, but what I'd like to emphasize today is that the context is saying that really this we need to think of this in a corporate way. And maybe that's the problem that Aaron gets to in his, in his email, is that yeah. in many ways we have failed in a corporate way to give a, a living witness to the world. Well, this balance between um, that you're talking about um, the relate of the individual and the corporate um, is really brought out in verses four and five uh, as as a in contradistinction to verses six through eight because in in four and five Paul is is a reaffirming his theology his belief that the church is both one and many it's one body but it has many members and he stresses in verses six through eight that each member of the body has particular charisms or gifts that God gives to that individual uh, for the purpose of building up the body. And this, of course, parallels uh, very strongly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where he says that the purpose of the individual gifts, and let's think of that on a, on a larger level. In other words, each particular type of Christian group uh, to the extent that they're faithful to the to the gospel of Jesus Christ, they are 
have a particular kind of ministry. And that that is often the case, by the way, when you look at different non-Catholic traditions in the Western world, right? They're, they have particular emphases that they have. The Catholic Church tries to encompass all of these in the formal body. But even then, the whole mystical body of Christ cannot be contained even within the within the formal boundaries of the Catholic Church because those people that are outside the Church, if they're baptized and have true faith in Jesus Christ, are already members of the Church. They're using those gifts that God has given them to extend the ministry of Christ and the Church through teaching and exhortation and the things that Paul lists there in verses 6 through 8. Yeah, Ephesians is of any book about is about the body of Christ, the mystical body, and, and there are many places in Ephesians that parallel exactly what we're looking at, especially in chapters 4 and on, as, as comparable to Romans 12 and on, where it's talked about the gifts within the church and the different functions and how we live together. But, but Ephesians, way back in the early part of Ephesians, in chapter 1, verse 13, says, In him you also who have heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and have believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, which is the guarantee of our inheritance. He's talking about baptism there. You become a member of the body through baptism, and through that you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You are, you are beginning your abiding relationship with Christ uh, through baptism and faith, in which he, he comes to dwell within us, and then the indwelling of, of Christ empowers us. We receive the gifts of the Spirit. And we produce fruit of the Spirit. All this uh, Jesus talks about in John chapter 15. And, you know, so this abiding, this living out of this faith that we've received through baptism, we live together in the body. Well, how do we do that? You know, what is the model for it? Where do we get that from? And, um, you know, the tendency, the devil whispers, whispers in our ear to look at culture and to look at how people get along and, and listen to wise people in our culture, uh, people that are very charismatic uh, to convince us. And Paul, throughout all of his letters, James in his letter, Peter in his letters, John in his letters, all of them, and Ken, this, this is a new thing in my thinking over the last 20 years, because I didn't recognize this back when I was a Presbyterian, how all of the teachings of Paul and Peter and James and John and all the New Testaments, behind it all are the teachings of Jesus Christ in his Sermon on the Mount forming this grid upon which we are to transform our minds. And we'll come right back to that after the break as we deal more about how we are to transform our minds in Jesus Christ. Hello, I'm Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, and I'd like to tell you about my newest book, What Must I Do to Be Saved? A growing number of Christians today believe that all that is necessary for salvation is an individual's faith in Jesus. Churches everywhere proclaim this Jesus and me theology based upon a simple interpretation of John 3.16. They diminish the need for rituals, sacraments, creeds, or even membership in any particular church. But is this true? In this book, I examine how salvation has always come by being a faithful individual in the family of God, the church. For information, please go to chresources.com or call 
1-800-227-1175. Thank you. What do all these have in common? A former agnostic, a fallen away Catholic, and a once upon a time Protestant. Find out next time on The Journey Home. Marcus Grodi invites pilgrims from all walks of life to share how they made it home to the Catholic Church. The Journey Home, only on EWTN. The Journey Home is seen and heard around the world on EWTN. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. Deep in Scripture is brought to you by the Coming Home Network International. We are a network of inquirers, converts, as well as lifelong Catholics helping one another grow closer to Jesus Christ. On our website, you'll find conversion stories, articles, and videos, as well as information about becoming a member and receiving our CH newsletter. Visit chnetwork.org or connect with us on Facebook or Twitter. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi and Kenneth Howell, and uh, you're hearing us in the Coming Home Network International Studios. And uh, you can, just a reminder, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter and all those uh, social media type things. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love you to go to chnetwork.org to see all the other things that we do in the Coming Home Network. Um, Ken, uh, just before the break... Uh, I began waxing eloquently, uh, excuse me, on uh, on really, it seems to me, in a way that I never realized it before when I was a Presbyterian pastor for so many years, and lifelong Protestant, actually brought up Lutheran, and then later Congregationalist, and then Presbyterian, um, that it, it seemed to me that a part of our thinking was becoming uncomfortable with how to deal with the teachings of Jesus and we tended to emphasize more the teaching of Paul, mm-hmm. almost as if he wasn't, almost as if he had moved beyond the actual teaching of Christ, almost if the specifics of what our Lord gave us in the Sermon on the Mount were for a pre-cross world, a pre-resurrection world, and that after the cross and resurrection, after Easter, we have Paul and James and John and Peter kind of reinventing things or, or, or reapplying uh, uh, a whole new way of understanding it, but it seems to me, Ken, that behind what we're looking at in verses, all of this, but particularly verse six through twenty-one, is really Paul taking the teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, and then in a very practical way helping people know how to live that out. I think that's absolutely right because when you look at, um, you know, particularly verses uh, 9 to the end of the chapter, verse 21, when he says, let love be genuine or let love be unhypocritical, um, despising or hating what is evil, clinging to what is good, I hear behind that the teaching of Jesus that that blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, uh, for they shall be filled. When he says in verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in in showing honor, uh, I hear behind that, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Mm -hmm. When he says in verse 11, never flag in zeal, or, you know, do not be uh, lazy with regard to diligence, is another way to translate that, 
but be zealous in spirit, serving the Lord. Uh, I hear the words of Jesus behind that. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. (coughs) In other words, I think it's absolutely right that Paul here, far from teaching something contrary or even in addition to what Jesus is teaching, is teaching exactly what Jesus is teaching, but he's just showing us the practical ways to put it into practice every day of our lives. Jesus' teaching in the Beatitudes might seem rather lofty and maybe ethereal, and and we don't know how that it applies. But Paul here is making it very concrete as to how you put that purity of heart into practice, how you seek after righteousness, how you show mercy, how you become peacemakers. I'm thinking of Ephesians 2, where Paul has that emphasis on, by grace we are saved through faith and not by our works. You know, that's kind mm, of the right. the emphasis here. This is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not because of the works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. You know, the, the issue often is this dichotomy between a faith, grace, and works, you know, living it out, the, the holiness, the, the perfection that Christ called us to on the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, it, unfortunately, over theological history in the lives of our separated brethren became a dichotomy. Again, we lose this both and of faith and works, faith and grace and works, we lose the mystery of that both and for an either or. Mm-hmm. And as a result, there are so many non-Catholic Christians that really don't know what to do with the Sermon on the Mount, don't know what to do with the call to holiness and perfection and, and sacrifice and suffering and mercy that our Lord calls us to, uh, simplicity, you know, radical call, uh, demands that he makes on his followers. And so we, we comfortably leave that behind and, and think we can take a, a, an easier road with Paul. But there is no easier road because behind everything Paul is writing here is the assumption of the teachings of, of the Lord. And it, that's really the only way to understand the radicalness of what Paul is saying. Um, you know, when we, we talk, for example, in verse 9, and 10. He's dealing with love there. Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Okay, how do we define what love is? Mm-hmm. You know, how radical is love? Uh, what is the model for our love? Well, this is Paul. Um, expanding on what he said earlier about not being conformed to the world, but transforming our minds so that we would know what the will of God is, what God wants, how God wants us to love. And so what's our model for that? Our model is Jesus. He shows us how to love. That old image of, you know, he loved us so much that you know, he raised his arms out in the form of a cross. You know, that, that's love. Uh, you know that is the model for loving one another. With and and Ken, there are plenty of places in the Gospel of John, in the first letter of John, um, in James, where we hear the other apostles describing what this love means. 
You can't say you love God if you hate your neighbor. You're a liar, John says in 1 John. Uh, James says you can't say you believe in God if that doesn't show in the way you live. Faith without works is dead. So the radicalness of what he's talking about in here is, a, is just as you said, kid, is a real trajectory of, of how do you take the teachings of Christ and then try and live it in community. Um, and then, go ahead. No, I'm just going to say, picking up on that, I, I see uh, here too that um, if you look at verses 6 through 8, Paul is talking about how we uh, individually or maybe in small groups or whatever exercise the charisms. And, and those are the things that we differ in. Some of us are called to be, you know, contributors. Others are called to be leaders. Others are called to act with specialized, so to speak, in acts of mercy. But when he turns to verse 9, you'll notice that the entire rest of the chapter is what should characterize every Christian believer uh, and and what should characterize the church as a whole, as which we were talking about earlier, Marcus, how how our lives need to reflect these values and these virtues that are listed for us there in verses 9 through, through 21, um, where people can recognize the genuineness of our faith and therefore the genuineness of the Jesus Christ that we believe in, that we trust, that we are, and the genuineness of the church that we believe in. Uh, so there's, there's the differences of individuals, but there's that which should characterize uh, every one of our lives. I, I think there's also, and you're talking about the radicalness, uh, the radicality of what Paul is teaching here. The things that are listed in verses 9 through 13, everyone might recognize, even unbelievers might recognize as being, well, that's a good thing. You know, let your love be genuine, uh, hold fast to what is good. But it's in verses 14 to 21 is, I think, hmm. where you see the true radicalness uh, going back to the root of what it means to be a Christian over and above, you might say, the natural affections that we have as human beings. Because it's only by the grace of God that we could bless those who persecute us. We could pray for those who persecute us. We could rejoice with those who rejoice, that we could live in harmony never repaying evil for evil. That is something that is, goes beyond human ability and received is received and is given only by the grace of God. You know, oh, wow, Ken. The, here we are, you know, 2,000 approximately years from the time Paul wrote this letter. You know, we're not quite that 1,950 years yeah. or, or whatever. Uh, um, and it... It just shows you that the spiritual battle rages on. It is exactly the same. To yeah. try and destroy the witness of the followers of Jesus Christ in whatever way is possible. And if you look at verses 6 through 8, and think for a second about social media and something like Facebook, where there's a value of Facebook, of course, that you know, that connects us. In a, mm -hmm. and, it can, and on the surface, it can seem like, wow, never in the history of the world have people been more connected. One could think, wow, what community we have. But I've read a couple of articles that say that one of the, the downsides of Facebook is that it feeds envy. It, oh, it feeds yeah. envy because 
you know, you turn on Facebook and you see what other people are doing and what other people have and how they're rejoicing and maybe the number of hits they get and all that. And the devil can use that to make a person feel inadequate. Yeah, I've heard people say that on Facebook, yeah. Yeah, that's right. You know, they can't live up to what they see their friends doing. They didn't know that their old friend from high school was so successful, and all of a sudden there he shows up on on Facebook, and he's a friend of a gazillion people, and, and I only got six people following me. So, I mean, there's the devil laughs. The yeah. devil laughs to make people feel inadequate about themselves. And Paul in 6 through 8 is saying, wait a second, wait a second. We each have unique gifts for the body. You might be just, your gift is giving. Your gift is showing mercy. You have the gift of teaching. You have the gift of serving. Don't be distracted by the gifts of other people. Don't be pulled away. And if anything, you know, it's all summarized in verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you know, in verses 9 through 12, the devil wants to destroy the body. So we can't live together. And, you know, we get discouraged, verse 11. So we lose our zeal and we quit serving because, you know, we don't live up to what we thought we wanted to be or what other people had for us. And then verse 12, you know, we we become impatient. Um, we, We lose. Prayer doesn't work anymore. So we quit praying. We lose our hope. We become discouraged. And we become so self-centered, self-focused that verse 13, we're not reaching out and sharing. Yeah, we're yeah, worried about right. the future. You know, if I, yeah, I can't give my money away. I won't have anything left to take care of me in my old age. You know, I got I to gotta keep that for myself. Who's going to take care of me? You know, the devil laughs. And then verse 14, I was going to say 14 through 21, that's how we work with those outside the church. Yeah, you, you know, and, and, and pretty soon, you know, we've lost all of our witness because we become so focused on ourselves. Well, there's so, there's several things in this text that you've you've alluded to, which I think really uh, are worthy of underscoring. One of them is when, when we are faced with questions of envy about what somebody else is able to do or how many hits they have on their Facebook page or whatever it is. Um, one of the things we can do is go back to verses 6 through 8. And you'll notice the way that Paul puts this. It's really, it sounds funny at first because he says, now if God has given you the gift or the grace of serving, then if service, he says in verse 7, if service is your gift, then, then serve. If teaching is your gift, then teaching. If exhortation, then exhort. It sort of sounds redundant. I mean, if you're a teacher, teach. If you're an exhorter, exhort. If you're a servant, serve, right? But what is he saying? I think what he's saying is this. Don't try to be what God didn't make you. Be what God made you. What gifts he gave you, rejoice in those gifts and put them at the service of others. You know, um, recently I've been enjoying... uh, being a track coach for my 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 oldest grandson's track team, right? And uh, so it, we've been doing this, and, and there's a there's a boy in his team, and the boy just doesn't have any athletic ability. And, you know, he's not a runner. He's not a he's not this. He's not that. But you know what? He's got a heart that wants to be with the team every step of the way. And we need people like that. Maybe they don't have any natural athletic ability, but they want to be with everybody. 
everybody else who has the greater ability. And this just the presence of that little boy on the team that gives joy to everybody else, you know. And so whatever the gift is that God has given, that's the way that we can build uh, the body up. That's what we should do in behalf of one another. And I think that that goes back to what it says in verse 16. In our translation that we put up on the website, I think it's the RSV, it says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. That association with the lowly might not be lowly people, but it might be with lowly things. Don't always be looking for the first place, for the grand and the mighty, but do those small tasks in life which can bring an awful lot of joy to a lot of people. And so that's what he may mean by associate with the lowly. Be led, be guided by the, the lower things. Don't always be seeking the limelight. Ken, you pointed out uh, how behind these scriptures are the Beatitudes. Yeah. And <clears throat> particularly verse 16, as you just pointed out, verse 15, uh, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Um, 14, bless those who persecute you, bless, do not curse them. Um, verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. Verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. You know, um, many of the early church fathers saw in the Beatitudes uh, a stepping stones, a staircase of, of conversion, and how one led to the next and led to the next. And uh, what particularly, for example, um, you're more of an early church scholar than I am, uh, uh, particularly Gregory of Nyssa made a big point of this in his writings. Mm -hmm. um, but what particularly comes to my mind is the inter, the juxtaposition of the fourth beatitude, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and then the fifth beatitude, which blessed are the merciful. And, and to me, the interconnection of those beatitudes is significant because if we recognize that the Beatitudes are not merely God giving blessing on people who find themselves in certain situations, but that God is blessing the willful response of people to grace. So in other words, a blessed, the hungering and thirsting of righteousness is, is a willful act in response to grace awakening within us, a desire for holiness. So, you know, our result, our, our act is hungering and thirsting, a desiring for that holiness that only Christ can give and learning what it means to be holy. And so we're blessed because of our response to grace. Now, when we learn uh, and discover what holiness and righteousness requires of us, it can cause a crisis because part of that means requires holiness and uh, righteousness requires that we let go of our rightful vengeance. Uh, if someone's hurt us, uh, we, we sense within us a right to retaliate. retaliate. Mm -hmm. 
uh, and it, we may have a just right to retaliate. Somebody stole from us, yeah. so we have a right. Oh, or somebody hurt us, then we have we feel we have a right to to re- respond back. Somebody slugs us on the left cheek, we've got a right to turn and and knock them silly on the right cheek. You know that that's that's a right we feel we have. Uh, to do that. But when we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we recognize that no, our response is to be the next beatitude. It's to be merciful. And as a result of being merciful, we move forward and our heart is changed. Our heart becomes purified. You know, there's the journey of the beatitudes. And that is expressed here, Ken, in what you were referring to, that you know, our, our desire, living those outside the community that don't understand our faith, that want to attack us, that want to criticize us, that want to even call us intolerant because of the audacity to stand up for what is true, that we yet still are called to bless those who persecute you in verse 14. Bless and not curse them. That's called to be merciful. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. They may not agree with us on the values of our lives, but yet we're still called to rejoice with them when we see them experiencing blessings in their life we don't think they deserve. Rejoice with them. Weep with them. Live in harmony with them. Do not be haughty but instead associate with the lowly. Never be, I mean, these are all, as you said, the, the living out of those beatitudes that are such a strong call to us to be different than the way the Lord thinks, or in the world thinks we ought to be. Well, I, I think that you, what you said there about, um, it's not just that the beatitudes are for us if we happen to be in those circumstances. They need to be consciously adopted into our lives and lived out. And I think that's particularly poignant when you look at verses 14 to 21, which is summarized rightly by what you said at the end. Do not. The general conclusion is don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In other words, what this call to bless those who persecute or to use Jesus' words, to pray for those who persecute you. To um, to rejoice even in our enemies, the good that our enemy experiences. This is not something that is possible in our human power. This is something only possible by grace. But it's something that we have to make a com- a conscious commitment to to do, no matter what. I remember one time, some years ago, I was talking to my my son about this, and I said to him. You know, what you have to decide is whether you're going to do what's right or what's wrong, whether you're going to do what's right, no, regardless of whether anybody else does what they, what's right. And you have to have that determination in your soul that that's what's going to guide you. And in another way, this comes back, I was talking with another friend recently about this with regard to the threat of Islam. And I don't think any of us, um, who have any reasonable sense of what's going on within the world today should not be deeply concerned about mm-hmm. whether um, the threat of radical Islam is real. I think it's very real. But the question is, what are we going to do about it? 
uh, what are we going to do? Well, there's there's two responses. One is the governmental response or the the military response, which is legitimate, but that's a, a topic for a different day. The question of just war. There is a legitimate uh, resistance of force that is legitimate, but what what Paul's talking about here is. The other side, and that is the personal side. How are we going to respond? We should not respond to threats with by hating in return or hating in retaliation. But we should do what is noble and what is just and what is right. Just as our fathers in a generation previous to our grandfathers did in the Second World War. They didn't respond to the Nazi criminals, war criminals, by taking them out on a tree and hanging them. They tried them in a court of law. In other words, they did what was noble in response to what was evil. And that has to be our commitment from the very beginning of our days, of our lives, throughout the whole of our lives, to do what is noble, to do what is right, in the face of evil. That's what Paul is calling us to here. I, boy, I wish we had more time to talk about this today because what's going on here in my mind is the battle of spiritual entropy. Uh, you know, this, mm-hmm. this idea of entropy is a scientific term that is a measure of the movement from order to disorder, uh, second law of thermodynamics. And mm-hmm. uh, in, in the real world, in the physical world, without putting energy into a system, effort to bring order into a system, everything naturally moves to disorder. And that's a a law of nature, uh, the way God put into creation. And there's a parallel with that in in spiritual entropy, if you will, Mm -hmm. that because of of sin and because of the the end result of that death and what that has spread to mankind and therefore has spread to creation, that there's this entropy of a movement towards evil, which is a lack of good. And when we respond to evil with evil, we add to that entropy. We add to that confusion. We just, we throw more into the pot of evil. And the only way to fight against that movement towards disorder is with good, even if that means giving of our lives. That the giving of that good in the biggest, in the, in the wide universe, adds to the goodness that is there to fight back the constant threat of the entropy of evil. And we'll, maybe we can pick up on that, Ken, next time and see how Aquinas and others have always dealt with this, this word good that's here, which I'd like us to talk more about next week. Ken, thanks. We've run out of time. And all of you, thank you for joining us on this program. Please go to deepinscripture.com. We'd love to hear from you and whether this program is an encouragement to you in Jesus Christ. God bless you. See you next week.